Eight hours after landing, there's still no signs of first contact. The objects measure at least 1,500 feet tall. More objects like this have landed around the world. I have something I need you to translate for me. Is that... We don't know if they understand the difference between a weapon and a tool. China just threatened to destroy their shell. Whatever they do, France and Korea will follow. We could be facing global war. We need to talk to the other sides and work together for once. We have 15 hours before this all goes to hell. Are you dreaming in their language? I know why they're here. What the hell is she doing? Do you trust me? Welcome to episode 20, 20 of First Strike the Invasion podcast, the podcast that looks at the 1988 DC crossover Invasion and all its tie-ins. I'm Siskoid. I'm Bass. I'm kind of sick. I'm not. <laughs> and so, <laughs> uh, I think you're going to hear my sick voice on a number of episodes. We're it, taping a number of things today. It's it's very it's very sexy. It's very... Uh, Is it? Uh, yeah. I've been uh, smoking 12 packs a day for uh, the past week just to uh, uh, get it. <laughs> Radio <laughs> tuned. You sound like one of those old school Western chain smoking madams. Uh, madams. I, yeah. I, thought, I, I thought up to that point I was like Jack Palance. No, no, no. You're like a madam. You leave it. <laughs> or not. Uh, well, believe it or not, today we're, do- we're doing um, New Guardians number six. Is, is the tie-in that we're looking at. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> uh, new Guardians? What the heck's that? Huh? Who are the old Guardians? Yeah. Well, 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 the old Guardians are the Guardians of the Universe. Exactly. We'll talk about this issue in the first part of the show, and in the second part of the show, we'll talk about what New Guardians means to us. <laughs> it's going to be a quick show, people. <laughs> I do have some thoughts. I do have some thoughts. I have thoughts, yeah. Uh, okay, good. I have notes. We have thoughts. We do. And we will share them. So let's get right into this issue. Now, it's a new format comic. This is the reason it wasn't in my collection to begin with and why I don't have any other New Guardians uh, on tap. Okay. <laughs> it's not a series I read uh, because new format books were only available in uh, comic book shops uh, and certainly not in Edmonston, New Brunswick. Exactly. Shout out. <laughs> are there people listening? Why in, not? Uh, they probably are. We have friends there. We do. We do. Why aren't they listening to this? I have no idea. We name they, drop Edmonston every two episodes. They just don't like us very much. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, this comic is called Fatal Pursuits by writer Carrie Bates, penciler Joe Staten, inker Mark Farmer, colorist Gene D'Angelo, letterer John Costanza, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, and editor Andy Helfer. Before we even head into the cover, maybe mm-hmm. I should give a little summary of what the New Guardians are all about and who they are. I think you really should. Uh, because I don't expect listeners to know who these morts are at this point. So before heading into a synopsis, I think we'll do a quick roll call. Suffice it to say, these guys were chosen from across the nations of the Earth by the Guardians of the Universe and the Zamorans uh, to usher in a new era of galactic peace. The only previously known members were Harbinger from uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. The Monitor's Herald, the Floronic Man, the plant-based former uh, villain of the Atoms, uh, and uh, Thomas Kamalku, who used to be Green Lantern's, uh, well, Hal Jordan's sidekick. And he refused the Guardian's offer to, uh, of superpowers, but he later developed the ability to bring out the best in people. Wow. We, we can't make this stuff up. 
In addition, the, these are the new characters that they were part of the New Guardians. Uh, Betty Clawman, a formerly an Australian woman, who, now a disembodied cosmic force with ill-defined abilities. Uh, she resides in the Aboriginal Dreamtime, and she's not in this issue. Uh, we don't get her presence. Yeah, I don't know who you're talking about. Exactly. Extraño, a Peruvian and the team's resident magician, who also uh, was one of the first, obviously, homosexual characters in comics. Oh, that's what it was. Uh, and he was one of the first to reveal that he was HIV positive. Oh, it? yeah, so, yeah. So this is a, the comic is very relevant yeah. uh, and topical, you know. Uh, Gloss, a Chinese woman who channels the mystic dragon lines of the earth and thus sports an array of earth-related powers. And uh, there's Jet, an English woman who could manipulate electromagnetic fields to a variety of effects. She was infected with HIV after being bitten by the Hemogoblin, a vampire that gave you AIDS. That's a very bad name for a very <laughs> bad villain. Uh, and Ram, a Japanese man turned into a being of silicon and electronics. Uh, he's tough, and he can communicate with electrical equipment over great distances, shoots electricity. and Yeah, and by stuff. far coolest guy. In coolest there. character there. These are the new Guardians. Let's look at the cover. Let's let's head into this issue. Look, the cover. We have the various uh, Guardians, plus a former Green Lantern, Arisia. Uh, yeah. She uh, And they're all looking up at the sky. Uh, behind them, we see the bodies of alien warriors, uh, but also ships coming in. But they're looking shocked towards camera, so we don't know what they're looking at. Yeah, we don't know, really know. It's a kind of a close-up. I think that's the Great Wall of China also oh. on there. Oh, geez. It looks like the Great Wall of China. Yeah, it probably is, although it's not actually in the in the book. It's not. Well, they're 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 in China. They're in China. There. I mean, yeah, but the wall isn't in every. I know <laughs> district. It's a great wall, but it's not in every town. Yeah, I get it. It, it. You know what? The cover off the bat is intriguing. I'll give it that. It's also very uh, representative of what's going on inside the book. This is the kind of shot you get. By shot, I mean like camera shot. Uh, you get inside that book. Uh, lots of close-ups. You know, we don't see a lot of uh, full bodies. Don't see a lot of full costumes. You kind of have to guess who's on there if you don't know them really well. They put Ram in front because he's the coolest guy there. But um, other than that, it's it's... Kind of weirdly done. I think it, it's fine, though, because composition is very top to bottom, bottom to top. It's It, it holds. Yeah, it holds. And it's it's got a, a double meaning because yeah. it looks like they're shocked about the invasion. But we'll find out that they're shocked for another reason. Exactly. All right. Here's the synopsis of this thing. The New Guardians are currently in Moscow, hanging with former Green Lanterns Kilowog and Arisia. Uh, Jet is essentially on her deathbed, having contracted AIDS from that villain. Hemogoblin. Uh, as they turn on the television to watch a black market copy of Red Heat, they get the news of the invasion. The warlords of Oka'ara are steamrolling through China and headed for the USSR. Casualties in the thousands already. The new guardians and their friends head for the carnage aboard their ship. Jet insists on coming. Now, hours later in China, they land in Gloss's village, currently occupied by Oka'aran forces. They put cloaks and hats on to infiltrate the village, but Kilowog and Floro break cover and help a family being brutalized. The Okarans stop them by killing villagers and promising to kill more. Uh, thinking them interfering aliens, they let them go on the promise they leave the area immediately, which they do. And as night falls, Kilowog must help uh, keep Floro from dying from frost. You know, when you're a plant. Meanwhile in the village, Gloss sees her parents for the first time since she's been turned into a guardian. 
they almost don't recognize her. The team then finds rebels planning to sacrifice themselves to dynamite the Okaran camp. They offer a better solution. Gloss goes to the invaders in disguise and surprises them by making the earth under their feet explode. Battle is joined between the new guardians and the aliens, but while the heroes overcome their ground forces, one warlord calls for reinforcements to decimate China in retaliation. As the fleet approaches to do just that, Jet flies out and uses her magnetic powers to destroy it expending the last of her life energy to do so. After the funeral, Ram informs his teammates that he's picked up a transmission from Captain Adam, and that will lead us to Invasion number two, of course. New Guardians number six. In a nutshell. Seeing as I have no idea who these people are, I read this, <laughs> Okay, yeah. and it really, it kind of gave me an overview of who they are, what they do, but uh, really no attachment to any of them. Actually, I was wondering what Kilowog was doing on there, not being on the cover, I actually wondered why, because I kind of recognized Floro, because uh, I saw him before. I don't know where, but I... I He's I, fought the Adam, the Flash. And, and I always yeah. thought he was a villain, so I, I was... I was like, what? Who's this guy? Is he a new one? Is he a, you know, he's kind of like Groot, actually, from the Guardians of the Galaxy. But the whole thing kind of takes us into China and almost into Russia. Well, they're in Russia at the start. start, They just do everything. Because we know that we know the forces are going towards Russia. Yeah. Since everything's happening happening simultaneously, this was uh, one of the concerns in Firestorm. Yeah. Uh, because one of the parts of Firestorm is a Russian. Exactly. So, uh, and at the end of the last Firestorm issue, Michael Arkadin really wanted to go back to Russia to mm-hmm. help defend the, the homeland. And uh, we know that, well, Kilowog's there because he's got an affinity for communism. His own planet is has a communist uh, government culture. And uh, during the, the, the last uh, year of Green Lantern Corps, uh, which was really about a few core members, uh, Kilowog went to Russia. He's the one that built them the rocket red suits. Okay. Because he's not a Green Lantern in this. He's uh, he's just Kilowog. I've, I've never read it, so... Well, read. this was my yeah. first experience with the New Guardians, aside from their first appearance in Millennium. I know it was really uh, during the 80s, late 80s, AIDS was a big thing. So I wasn't surprised to see AIDS brought up in the comics. Uh, I was surprised, though, knowing how this hemoglobin, because hemoglobin is actually inside our red cells. So it's it's a real thing. And then this synthetic vampire called hemoglobin who spreads AIDS. I kind of thought that was kind of weak. And well, that was it's weird. It's so weak that the uh, Spider-Man books also use the name for uh, hobgoblin <laughs> or like one of those... Oh my god. One of the goblins. It's just bad. Just don't do that. It's it's a bad eighth grade pun. It's And horrible. to tie it into the AIDS epidemic is Yeah, that was kinda weak <clears throat> and, and I don't know if you read the letters at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, a lot of people they're not happy with the New Guardians. Or uh, that aspect of it, anyways. At least that aspect of it. But uh one thing is cool is that openly gay character. Yay, we like that. It's never outright said, or he's not allowed to have relationships, yeah. but, you know, it's the beginnings of maybe addressing it. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's fine. We we enjoy that. It, I, I was surprised by that, because uh, 80s, a lot of the AIDS epidemic was, uh, I don't know, publicized or, or reported off the backs of uh, gay people, and a lot of people thought that only gay people could get AIDS. And it, which is not the case, you know. It was kind of edgy in that sense, but you know, looking back, knowing a lot more about AIDS and and everything, this really felt 
Uh, at least that part of it. It's not a big part of the, the comic, but they did talk about it uh, quite a lot inside this one issue. Uh, knowing how, well, hindsight, I guess, is always close to 2020. So looking back, I'm, I'm looking at this and it's, it's very shaky. I don't know. I don't know if I would have done this AIDS thing inside the comics. Like it was done. I don't know how to explain this. It, it yeah, just, but the last page kind of. We don't actually see the, the whole AIDS no. storyline play out, except the fact that but, Jet is dying of AIDS. Yeah, but they do, and not a gay character. I mean, they yeah. do address that. Although the problem was that the, the AIDS vampire, she contracted it from a scratch, which isn't something. Yeah, isn't a way you can contract such a disease. So um, uh, that was the big problem in the letters page. People calling out yeah. the science of it. Yeah, uh, and misinforming the public in a sense. Perhaps accidentally, but you know you can't keep, get it from a toilet seat. Yeah, you can't. That kind of thing. So it was fueling yeah. the AIDS scare without you know really. I think it was fueling it with good intentions. Yeah, but well, definitely. You know, but but I would just steer clear of that whole thing, and they they seem to be bringing it up. Just to, I don't know. It felt like it was in there because it had to be in there, but it really didn't do anything for the plot or whatever is going on in this issue. No. Right. Well, it's obviously it's a continuing subplot. Yeah. That uh, for for Jet is fatal or a reason for her to to sacrifice herself. Yeah. Uh, rather than die a a slow death. I mean, it gives her the reason to do so yeah. and we do get one of our few invasion casualties to date. Yeah. From and, that. And and I do get that this this sacrifice is a lot it's at least this one compared to Tempests in uh, Doom Patrol which, which was kind of weird. You don't really understand it or or Tempest the mo- didn't die in uh, Doom Patrol lady? Uh, not Tempest. Celsius. Uh, Celsius. Uh, right. I said Tempest cuz she has the same powers as Tempest. Right. Aqualad, yeah. Aqualad uh, was became Tempest and he had the same powers as uh, Celsius. And but Tempest exists also inside the Doom Patrol. Confusing. Is, anyway, Celsius the sacrifice. Celsius uh, yeah. was lame. Was not This one is not lame. Well choreographed. Yeah. This one was actually uh, yeah. you know, it's it's a true hero sacrifice. Yeah. And I do think she probably would have done something like that even if she didn't have AIDS, but uh, and, and might have survived it. Yeah, but they tell us that she's weak at this point. She's very sick and she's doing it. This is like the last ounce of strength she has. So it's a beautiful moment. I, yeah. I really like that. And she prevents China from being decimated. Exactly. Um, and who knows how much... That was a, like a big fleet untold. Yeah. Countless uh, casualties were avoided in that moment. It's a very heroic moment for Jet. And I think that's one of the strengths of this issue is, it is. that it's not tangential to the invasion story. It, they're right in the mix. The Okarans have taken over China, and this is like one of the species that we haven't really seen what they've been yeah. doing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's like it's a full battle. Uh, perhaps a lot of coincidences. It just happens to be Gloss's village, or maybe they've got a stronghold in various villages and just... You know, just so happens. But of all the villages in all of China, yeah, <laughs> they had to come to hers, uh, which is uh, you it's know, it's cool. good. It happens. Oh, yeah, right. It could happen. And there were probably that was just a small force of Okarans. They must be everywhere. It just happens to be like that one fighting ground. We're fighting the aliens, even though the second chunk after Invasion Number Two, that's really when we fight back. The first strike element, where most heroes have been told not to intercede. Yet, the New Guardians are not in the U.S., are not under U.S. jurisdiction. They are uh, international heroes. So they have the, an, an opportunity to really get into the fight yeah. uh, in the, the front part of this crossover. And they do. They didn't get the message from Captain Adam before the end of the issue. So. That's it. I like that. 
even though maybe they're not like the name heroes that we'd like to see. We do know Kilowog. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ones we know don't... uh, Kilowog has like a big role to play, but Arisia is like at the end, I was was like, wait, did she go on the mission? She does so little. We don't even see her. Yeah, yeah, I had to look back and then, yeah, she's when they're watching Red Heat or about to watch Red Heat. She's there. Okay. When they're playing trivia games, she's there. But she's not in the fight? Well, no. And then at the end, she's there. But I mean, she has no powers either. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, There are perhaps too many characters to juggle uh, in this and they didn't all need to come. Although maybe they have to stick together uh, no matter what. And they're probably moving around from country to country uh, in this quest for peace, which I'm not entirely sure how that all worked as a series because like I said I didn't read it and the AIDS isn't the only 80s thing in it I mean just the fact that they're going to watch Red Heat yeah <laughs> yeah they do name drop Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah of course and they're in Russia they're in communist Russia we're, we're nearing the fall of the uh, Iron Curtain basically yeah. so it's very very of the moment and it was always designed to be a series of, about this pivotal moment in history yeah and why these why the guardians of the universe put these people together to usher in a new era so we must be at a on a pivot yeah uh, somehow so talking about the world's problems today with today being late 1988 uh was you know was a way to show that it was a pivotal time and it turned out to be it is yeah because you know if the the Eastern Bloc falls right during the series. It actually speaks to something, you know, in in society. And I think uh, the original creator, Steve Englehart, sort of had I don't know if he he felt it was coming or it just so happened that way. And he he did um, script or co-plot the first few issues of this before Carrie Bates took over. Mm-hmm. You know, there was probably something in the air. I'm, I'm not sure I felt it myself. As a teenager, probably uh, not. But maybe they felt it in the, the late '80s. But I think we always feel it. I mean, I think we're in a. It feels like a pivotal moment pivotal right, now. right now. You know, yeah. it, and it probably always does. <laughs> well, it felt pivotal in 2001. It felt pivotal. I think. Know. I think it's the the pivotal moments are much closer than we think they are. They kind of feel at like within 10 years, you have these pivotal moments. But I think they do exist all the time and one of these like these comics that do this that kind of live in that moment they're kind of superhero archives of what's going on on our world so it's nice to see these things yeah because obviously in a superhero comic it's always a pivotal time yeah because they're fighting great forces of course uh, but that doesn't happen in our world so actually using our world few comics actually do that with any sustained momentum Uh, and New Guardians was designed to do that we'll talk in the second part whether that worked or not, but that is the attempt. What did you think of the art? You know what? I did like the art, but it's not always consistent. Mm. Uh, it, it kind of varies on... It, it really looks like some panels or some pages were, you know, they had a little bit more TLC than than some others. What's TLC? Uh, tender Loving Care. Oh. You know, some of them do feel maybe, uh, you know, done on the quick, but... Other than that, I you know I like the cartoony type characters. They're you know the big lines. Yeah, and Joe Stanton was at this point in his career 
rather cartoony. Yeah. Uh, I like him better on non-superhero stuff generally in this in this time, but he mm-hmm. was the artist on Green Lantern Corps and uh, then on Millennium and then on this. It's all part of the same... This is essentially the Green Lantern saga continuing in yeah. some form, which is the reason there are Green Lanterns in it. But, you know, uh, um, that being said, there's a lot of superheroes in this team are very elaborate superheroes. Mm. I mean, Ram is seems to have this translucent skin where you can see like the the circuitry yeah you know what it looks like like it looks like the clear parts on my um superpowers brainiac figure yeah yeah it's got that kind of but that's a would make a cool action figure it it would really make a cool action figure uh floral the floral man i mean he's uh, very elaborate also he has this constant headdress type thing and you know all the all the characters are they're very complicated so you know you're not drawing superman or batman you know capes and you know when you draw nice capes i mean it's a nice cape to be drawn but you know it can hide a lot of stuff and quicken the deal you know but some of the art is very, very nice. Like right at the end, that pivotal moment, you know, that, that great moment with Jet sacrificing herself. Right. I mean, that is beautifully drawn and the momentum going into that is also great. You know, it's, it's really great art and it's really yeah, she's nice. She's almost and- dancing. Oh yeah. Uh, like she's shaping, sculpting the uh, electromagnetic waves. There's a nice rendition of the electromagnetic power. I really liked it. Yeah, the way like a green subprint. And surprint, I'm sorry. It, it feels like an electromagnetic power. You yeah. know, it's not just like glowy or random generic type. It it feels like an electromagnetic field. So it, I really like that. Yeah, and the you know the concentration on her face when they go into close up. Yeah. Uh, and finally, we never see her death, her actual death. So it's no, not no. exploitative. Instead, we see a different camera angle on the the shocked realization that she's given her life which is also a nice close-up it's, it's like a, a weird spot underneath gloss's hair <laughs> but you know, it's an interesting shot it's like it's, it's hiding that final death throw and yet we get what's happening so there are some strong moments in here although i think what you know what i think doesn't really work with the art is uh the new formats garish colors yeah the colors are too too vibrant and when they're darker colors uh, they just like soak up the the lines of the art. Uh, they're so close to black, really, in in a sense. So those like dark blues and dark purples. Uh, the Oka Arns themselves look like big gross goblins. Yeah. Uh, but they're blue and purple, and, and all of these colors are super deep yeah. and dark. Yeah. Uh, so that you almost don't see them properly. I think that's the real problem. And I'm not really uh, I'm not seeing Gene D'Angelo, the the colorist, was at fault. The process, the process yeah. itself, the printing process is just i don't think it works as well as like a softer new sprint yeah yeah exactly exactly and seeing as there's a lot of action in this maybe softer newsprint would have been yeah. great and we would have seen you know the great inking and the great art a lot better yeah the the colors are just just too deep and flat so i think we're in the between the time when we were using flat newsprint and yeah. pixelated dot matrix uh, colors and you know, yeah. those dots we're between that and like the computer enhanced shadings and exactly uh, so it's all flat blocks of deep color without those little you know or the dots are probably very very close together uh, so that we don't see anyway it feels like somebody just colored it with a magic marker Final thoughts on the story itself before we take a break? Well, other than the the fact that I don't really know these characters, never really heard of them, 
I think they were kind of cool, but I didn't get to know them very well. Because I don't know half the names, the superhero names. They always call themselves by their civilian names. So I didn't know who was who and why. And other than this, I kind of felt like it was fun to see the Okanarans in there. It was fun to see another region where a battle is brewing. Or It was also great to see the Chinese people planning to strike back you know yeah the, the, yeah the, like a human resistance yeah i like that element yeah the the humans were like all right they're we're not gonna stand for this we're we're fighting back and i really like that also because it doesn't feel like the typical human was just you know meat uh, although floro always calls people meat in this and yeah that kind of bugged me but well he's wood <laughs> exactly he's bark i really like that just typical human people did not stand for this And uh, I really like that. So I, I liked it more than I disliked it. I don't know if this issue would have made me want to read more uh, New Guardians. But you know what? It was okay. Yeah, it made me think that the New Guardians got a raw deal. Probably did. And we'll talk about the reasons why it was like a doomed to fail okay. uh, in the second part, in my opinion. But reading it, and uh, despite its flaws and taking uh, the, the era it was written in, understanding that that's what it was and what it was trying to do, I think it was like a better series than I probably thought it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I wouldn't be disinterested in reading the whole series, uh, which is pretty short. <laughs> yeah. Fact. But yeah, it's it does have some problems. We'll cover those in the second part of the show. Right now, we're going to take a small break. You need to cough. Uh, we'll be right back. To tell you the story of Green Lantern is to tell you the story of the birth of a universe. The origins of DC as a whole. It's a magic emerald meteor from space in the 1940s. It's the establishment of the JSA. It's the birth of the Silver Age. It's the introduction of a universal police force. It's the formation of the JLA. It's the emergence of the multiverse. It's a crisis in both space and time. It's an emerald dawn. And it's an emerald twilight. It's the brightest day. And the blackest night. And the Lantern cast covers all of this and everything in between. We're Green Lantern's greatest advocates and fiercest critics. We've been fans for years, and it's the reason we're self-proclaimed Lanternologists. So find us on iTunes and Stitcher and give us a listen. Because the history of Green Lantern really is the history of the DC Universe. And we've got the interviews, commentaries, reviews, and more to back it up. And we're back. We are back. Uh, we're talking about the new Guardians. Yep. And uh, what uh, what went wrong? <laughs> well, first of all, I didn't even know new Guardians existed. Yeah, so, so this something is, went very wrong. Yeah, because this is issue number six. Of um, 12. Of 12. So basically one year that's, worth that's of... That's all uh, they had. Uh, they premiered in uh, Millennium. Okay. Which was the previous crossover, a not so beloved crossover, although some people will defend it. Of course. And, uh, and, and well, I, I've heard some very good defenses from Michel Fief, for example, yeah. on, uh, on the, the JLI show that Shag has. And, you know, maybe, oh, there's something there. And the New Guardians were the, pro- like the one spin, the, well, not the one, but one of the spinoffs. This and Manhunter were really the spinoffs of that crossover. So the whole Millennium event is basically, What we remember it for is that Manhunters, Manhunter agents infiltrated each of the, the different series and characters' lives. And then, you know, in this crisis time, 
pop out, betray the heroes, yeah. or make sure the heroes follow along, or whatever. DC's version of uh, the Skrull. A secret invasion. Secret invasion. Or yeah. really, secret invasion would be the copy here. That's what we remember it for, but what yeah. were the Manhunters trying to achieve? They were trying to stop the Guardians of the Universe from creating this new race of Guardians, or this new group of Guardians, who are these guys? Because they fear, uh, well, they want to stop the Guardians from doing anything the Guardians want to do. It's basically what the Manhunters, yeah. just, they're revenge-driven, uh, really. But they want to stop these guys from being formed. And so the whole series, the whole Millennium series itself, uh, deals with the Guardians recruiting them uh, and others which who didn't make the cut, who died or one of them became a villain. Uh, and uh, once, once they're assembled, well, okay, what, what, what's next? And what's next was the series, which nobody really uh, followed. Okay. Millennium was kind of a flop uh, in a sense. I mean, it was like eight issues weekly. So by the time you figured out it, was, it wasn't great, uh, it was too late, you'd bought them all. I think one of the problems with books like this is the creation of new characters. Yeah. And then you're supposed to be invested in them enough to follow a series. And that's always a problem. Like it was a, it's the problem for me for from uh, like the outsiders. Yeah. It's the problem for me for like many superhero teams that are just created for a new series, and you don't know who these people are, and they got terrible code names, and these guys uh, in particular have a lot of crossover between their powers. Like we saw Jet using electromagnetic powers, but then Ram can shoot out an electromagnetic pulse to to kill electronics. Okay, it's an electronic. Power, but it's also a an electromagnetic power. Yeah, like jets, and jet is like playing with lines in the air while gloss, another very terrible name, you know, very generic names. Jet, it's, it's horrible. Jet, how does that have anything to do with electromagnetics? I know. Uh, you know, gloss doesn't relate. To I mean, anything. it's it's. It's like a piece of makeup. For, for, for nature power? Yeah, for like the dragon line, like ley lines in the earth. Yeah. So they we're all representative of great energies. So you look at them and they look just look like, I call these role-playing groups. Yeah, uh, it kind let's of all make our own superheroes and see what comes out. And uh, when I talk about the outsiders, the outsiders people care about uh, normally are Black Lightning and Metamorpho and Batman, the people yeah. that already existed. And then I look at, and some of these, like Katana became popular enough, yeah. I suppose. But when uh, the Outsiders began, we had this team at Halo and Geoforce and Katana. And it's just like, what are these people doing together at all? And it just looks like character sheets. Uh, let's really create does. some heroes and let's, let, you know, maybe on a napkin. And then let's play with these guys, and they don't have an innate connection. It's like, like it's not like the Teen Titans, where yeah. all the sidekicks come together, or you know, they already have a common the bond. The Fantastic Four, who yeah. were like a family, like there's no premise to keep them together. Yeah. So here, the New Guardians have a premise, but I I don't I don't know that it was ever spelled out well enough. What does that mean? Usher in a new era, what, a new I, millennium. What does it mean? What does it mean to usher in a new millennium, which was the reason it was called millennium? Yeah. When it's still 1988. <laughs> well, that's. Oh, it's. I don't know. We're 12 For, years away. Foreshadowing. I don't yeah. know. But the uh, thing is, you know, when you, you think about the guardians of the universe, these are all powerful beings, right? They just watch over everything in the universe. They, these are the guys that created the uh, the Green Lantern Corps and the Manhunters, and you know, they create galactic police forces. I don't really buy these. You know, six heroes as being as powerful as the guardians of the universe. No, these guys and, and could they're based on... on Earth, and it's like Earth is Earth the new Oa. 
I don't in the new era. Exactly. We don't really know. And if they are, I mean, I I love the fact that they're from different different countries yeah. and different backgrounds and different sexualities. And I dig that. I get it. But as Guardians of the the Universe, wow, that's that's a big bite. And 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 I just don't buy it because you know what, Batman can take all of them down easy. Well, not the Batman in this era. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you don't know. Uh, we actually we covered Batman. Yeah. Batman took out like. Danigarians and and Urbody and just swam back home. So you know, Batman is pretty uh, pretty tough in this era. But you know, I'm just saying, I'm not buying the new Guardians of the Universe. At at first, I thought they were like the new maybe Global Guardians. No, well, that would have been something, and then you could have had actual Global Guardians in it. Well, it's kind of the same so to prop up the team. It's kind of the same premise, though, right? People from different countries. I would I would still read the hell out of a Global Guardians comic. If it were good. oh yeah, uh, and uh, but this isn't it, and I still liked it. One of the things that it well, was... it's not a bad comic. That's why no, we liked no, it. No. A, it yeah. was nicely done, and it's the colors are a bit too. But rich, it's not but... necessarily a viable premise for a book. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if, if you want to, you know, to sell units, one of the things it does is you talked about the diversity, uh, nationalities, race, uh, sexual orientation. Uh, a lot of women in the team. Yeah, and they all kick ass. The diversity, uh, which is something that that people hunger for today in in comics is one of the things that people ask of DC and Marvel is all part of that idea that it, this is to be a relevant comic. Yeah. So if we go back to the start of the relevant comic, which arguably is uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow with Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill. And so this is also a Green Lantern book more or less. So it makes sense to be part of that that line. It's the basis for the Green Lantern Corps, right? Somebody from everywhere, you know, from yeah, every sector. That's one way to, to see it. Yeah, sure. And people call the old O'Neill series relevant and there's a whole, and, yeah. you know, it changed comics, more or less. But um, really, when you read those issues today, they're very, very obvious, you know, on the nose, which I think is also a problem with the New Guardians book. You know, the, 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 like those Green Arrow, Green, Green Lantern stories had people calling out Green Lantern for, you, you've helped the red people and the, the blue people and the green people. What about the black people? What about the brown people? And he's like, oh, my God, no, I think I'm a racist. Yeah, yeah like Green Lantern's never done anything for the entirety of humanity. It's, <laughs> it's a weird... Okay, you're bringing up that issue, yeah. and we're glad you are, but at the same time, it's a bit extreme in yeah. the way it's presented. You know, the debate we're having is perhaps has some, you know, it's a bit on the nose. Yeah. And similarly, yeah. if we're going to talk about the drug, about the drug problem, it's in, in speedy Arrow, yeah. taking heroin. I mean, could you go a little more extreme? Well, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of weird that speedy would take something that knocks you out, but I'm just saying. <laughs> He could have been on cocaine. He's already got a, a drug in his name. He was, it's, it's he was doing speedballs or something, but, you know. Uh, yeah, but, it, it just go to extremes to, yeah. to talk about that, that subject. Yeah. The same way here, I think. Like like the big three story threads from my research in New Guardians was AIDS, the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. And we saw it was like, you know, there's an AIDS vampire. and It's kind of clumsy, but yeah. yeah. Clumsy. That's a good way to, to say it. Uh, cocaine addiction was also – they have – there was a villain who – uh, got his powers from uh, sniffing blow. Our man? Uh, no. no, not not our man. No, it's like uh, snow something, uh, snow flame. Anyway, snow flame, <laughs> something like that. I just love the eighties. 
so that was very on the nose as well. Not to me, not to me. Nudge, 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 nudge. And then you had the big villain from Millennium that wasn't a Manhunter. The, the guy that was kicked out of the New Guardians basically was a uh, South American white man. And uh, he, he was like, he was apartheid manifest, really. Okay. So they had to fight against apartheid. And it was like, a, that was a major story line. Well, that, that would be a major storyline. But again... It's very, very, uh, yeah, it's very obvious the way yeah. it's done. But relevant comics have always been a little bit PSA, a little bit after yeah. school special. When you're reading comic books, you, you kind of get into it and you, you kind of understand stuff quickly, you know, how you know, mutants are, you know, you can draw a line directly to, you know, being different. And, you know, you, you get all these things when you're reading it. And I think these PSA type comic books, subtle works for people who consume what you're doing. Like you can do subtle in a comic book for people who understand comics and you can do subtle in music for people who understand music and you can do subtle, you know, to get the attention from outside of that normal, I don't know how to call them clients or readers or consumers. You need to be a little bit, you know, you, you need to highlight stuff and, and that's what you do, I guess. Well, that's my take on it. I don't think that they really write that stuff to be, uh, you know, preachy to the comic book fans. Yeah. Well, there's something about work for hire as well. If you, if there's something you care about personally, you will not approach it the same way as if you were told, okay, this book needs to be relevant. And yeah, you, exactly. You need to put issues in it. And then you're putting every issue you see in the newspaper uh, in the book, which yeah. is perhaps the approach here. I, I'm not sure. Because there is that whole thing where they were created by Steve Englehart, who has always been a bit of a... I'm going to say a new agey kind of writer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, he worked for a long time on Avengers and uh, then on uh, Solar Surfer. And so it's always been a kind of, his groove has always been a little bit new age to me. Oh, yeah, that's fine. And this is very new age, that very whole much. idea of uh, ushering a new era. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost a sort of earth reincarnated kind of thing. I just love the ushering a new era thing because it never really means anything. Yeah. It doesn't really in any context. But then, you know, he leaves the book very, very quickly and leaves it to Carrie Bates, who's like, you know, Firestorm's creator. And yeah. So was Bates kind of stuck with this? Probably try to get the groove in a little bit. But, I mean, writers are going to be doing what writers do. And I think they always try to write the best they can with what they got. So yeah. Not to say that Carabates can't do relevant comics. I mean, Firestorm, oh. Captain Adam, you know, you can... Well, it's probably something that's more of a niche in... I'm, I'm thinking, because I'm not, I'm not a comic book writer. I don't know. But I'm, I'm thinking probably some people are better at doing relevant than others just because it's their groove. You know, maybe they wake up and the first thing they do is read newspapers and... They get all worked up about things, and and I'm guessing some writers, you know, they wake up and they read other comics, and, you know, they imagine stuff, or they sculpt, or, I don't know, they run, or something, I don't know. So I'm thinking they probably... Do magic. Probably do. Yeah, but, you know, some probably some of them are... It, it, I can only compare it to comics, where some comics do, you know, funny jokes that are that have nothing to do with, uh, with news or anything that's relevant in society but some of them just do that because that's what inspires them so hard to say it's really hard and to it's say. not when when a series like this fails and it's forgotten 
you know, we're 25 years later. It's hard to find information on that. It's not like the writers were quick to have, give interviews or that these interviews would be easy to find for me yeah, today. Yeah, exactly. So I don't have any more insight. Perhaps you do at home and you want to leave that as uh, yeah. listener feedback over at fireandwaterpodcast.com. That'd be great. That would be <laughs> we'll read it next wonderful. Time. New Guardians. It's a uh, And today they've, they've kept the brand alive because the New 52 had a New Guardians yeah. book, which was Kyle Rayner's Green Lantern book. Well, and it was, you know... With uh, other colors of uh, the yeah, spectrum. Yeah, it was the the entire spectrum, which fits a lot better for a, a new guardian of the universe type thing, right? Yeah. It's it's basically every lantern of every color together working together as one, as one unit. So that kind of worked better because I would believe that these green lanterns were stronger or could take on... I'd say the old Guardians or even the Justice League or, you know, I don't think the uh, 1988 new Guardians could take uh, Firestorm. I uh, tell you. We're going to take another break uh, and then uh, we'll get to your uh, listener feedback in a segment we call Letters, Letters from, from the, the Front. Audemars, Argus, Audemars, Ballistic, Cardinal Sin, Channel Man, Chimera, Edge, Freight Train, Geist, Gunfire, Akrat, Harry Force, Hitman, Hook, Jam, Joe Public, Loria, Crack, Layla, Lionheart, Loose Cannon, Megabiter, Mongoloid, Miriam, Nightblade, Output, Pass, Prism, Razor Shark, Rod and Jane, Samaritan, Shadow Strike, Slick Shot, Smart Shot, Terror Smith, Wow, that's a lot of radical trademark names. And you may not have heard of any of them, but they were all introduced in DC Comics' 1993 Summer Annuals. Most went on to figure into more stories within their four-color universe. Many earned their own spotlight series, and one became a cult hit from acclaimed creators. While the comics of the 1990s are often derided, for me, as a longtime comic book reader, I found a deepened fandom and a safe harbor from the Chromium Age in the DCU. I fell in love with the history and legacy found in generations of heroic mantles, and my journey into this continuity largely began with Bloodlines. Join me, Diablo Frank, as I explore the more overlooked areas of DC Comics' superheroes, beginning with an early 90s intellectual property generating stunt and fanning outward towards other obscurities and icons from throughout decades of sequential art stories, all flowing through the DC bloodlines. Podcasts available on iTunes, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archive. Letters from the front! Letters from the front! Uh, first, a uh, quick uh, forgotten uh, message for uh, the Captain that's, Adam issue. That's a ways back. Uh, well, from Shag, I somehow my eyes skipped over him. and uh, But he said of that episode, uh, During the invasion, I wasn't reading Captain Adam, though I loved the idea of the military superhero taking charge of the heroes. I had built up this superhero military response in my head. Sadly, the issue you described didn't really play as well as my imagination. Regardless, great Broderick art australia never forget never again amen shag <laughs> and he's yeah. redeemed let's go to the website firewaterpodcast.com and read some of the comments on our last episode detective comics 595 can't wait to hear that because so, there's a lot of batman fans out yeah, there yeah including people who run batman podcasts on our very network yeah. case in point ryan daly uh who starts with a joke he says what's the joker's favorite chinese restaurant funny walk <laughs> And you were saying how Funny Walks funny defined walks, the Joker. I do think so. And and that's great. I'm going to use that. I'm stealing that, Ryan. Probably stole from someone as well. I <laughs> can't imagine. So we talked a lot about what was it, was so special about Batman that he could be done silly, he could be done dark, and you know we, we yeah. could accept every shade in between. Uh, he says, I wonder if Spider-Man is the only other superhero with this kind of diversity in story potential as Batman. I don't think you could tell as many Elseworlds-type stories with a wall crawler as you could with the Dark Knight because Batman could become Batman 
design in any era. Whereas Spider-Man can be silly and uh, kid-friendly, a perfect vehicle for moral guidance for young readers, but he can also, on occasion, step into the realms of darkness and despair without feeling out of place. Some of the greatest stories are rooted in tragedy and death, from the original death of Uncle Ben to the death of Gwen Stacy to Craven's Last Hunt. Does the comparison hold up, or am I forgetting some crucial bit of Spider-Man truth? You know what? I, I think Spider-Man would be one of those characters who can be the entire spectrum. I'm not sure I would put him in the same category, simply because Batman, Superman, the, the other characters we're talking about, are extremes, are iconic ideals of the day of the night where, where Spider-Man has always lived more in the real world. There's less of the myth about him and more about, you know, real life. And real life does have those shades. Yeah. Yeah. He's a bunch of shades of gray. You know? Yeah. So he is already, it's like he started in the gray world. So going to the light or the dark is let's just a skip and a hop. Whereas yeah. Batman started in the dark, how can he then be fun, silly, and comedy? Superman started in the light, how can he work as darkness? And then Batman can do, go that distance, whereas Superman can't. So I'm not sure that Spider-Man is like a fair uh, comparison. But yeah, definitely, Spider-Man works in both tones. Yeah. But I'm just not sure that you know he has as far to go. Well, to prob- get to either tone. Probably because on the spectrum, he's not light, he's not dark, he's pretty much in the middle. So he can go lighter, he can go darker, because like you said, Batman is basically dark. He's the end of that spectrum, Superman's on the other end. And to go the distance towards light and funny for Batman is a longer ways to go than for Spider-Man. Right. To become Spider-Ham, although they are different characters, or I don't know. So since Spider-Man is on that same one-line spectrum that I choose to, to use as my, my reference here, the distance is far greater for Batman to become the pink and purple and yellow Batman from the, you know, the, the color crusader thing, or uh, Batman goes further when he becomes silly. Uh, Batman becoming Lego Batman? And still working is quite incredible. See? Chris Franklin answers, uh, maybe it's the crime noir connections between Spidey and Batman that make them so adaptable. Uh, Chris goes on to say, I think Batman's attitude towards answering the call in that issue, because that, that was like the main point of contention. Yeah. That Batman didn't want to take part. Uh, he says, can be seen as the editorial indifference O'Neill had to Batman's role in the DCU in general. The Bat and Super Offices really didn't like to share much at this point. By late 88, early 89, two years after the period Ryan and R are currently covering on Nightcast, O'Neill seems to have settled into a very urban Batman. He's mostly eschewed the more fantastical trappings of the character, even the vehicles beyond the Batmobile. Uh, yeah, it wasn't the bad jet or the bad copter in the story either, right? It was like the GCPD copter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's odd. It's a shame that he's limited his scope so much, because a teched-up Batman going in to take out a bunch of aliens would have been a fun romp and made more sense than him whipping a bunch of kuns by hand. The animated series and later JLJLU proved that urban, gritty Batman who roughs up gangsters could be the same guy as the Batwing-flying, gadget-laden Batman who fights Darkseid if done with care. Irv Novik, the artist, was pretty long in the tooth here. He had started in the Golden Age of Comics co-creating The Shield, the first patriotic superhero, predating Captain America. He came to Batman in the late 60s and stayed around the character off and on until the early 80s. He retired around the time of the crisis and showed up here uh, and there during this period. Yeah, this isn't his best stuff, but I was never a huge fan of Steve Mitchell's inks, and he wasn't working over Norm Brayfogle, so that may be part of the issue. Uh, but it's probably mostly age. 
Novick did solid, dependable work on Batman and Flash in the 70s, much like Dick Dillon on JLA. Oh. Asking what my favorite Batman period is is like asking who my favorite kid is. <laughs> Which one is it? We uh, all have one. <clears throat> Don't lie to yourself. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, And a lot of people, go join the discussion. Go read it. There's oh, yeah. a lot of people talking about their favorite eras, and usually they don't stick to just the one. I'm not going to read everything here. Uh, and finally, he says, good on you, Bass, for raising your kids on Batman 66. That was my parenting angle as well. My <laughs> kids caught all of those nods in the Lego Batman movie, even the fairly obscure ones. Oh, we did go see the Batman Lego movie. It was the best time ever. Oh, it was great. I also went with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> uh, David is Gutierrez says, I agree with you on the Dick Grayson Batman. He's my favorite version of Batman. Sorry, Franklin and Ryan. I'm a huge fan of legacy characters, as am I. Uh, I imagine O'Neill had a hard time with Batman being in the JLI at this time. It's hard to keep the whole urban myth thing going when the character is on camera in such a high-profile team. I'm a bit split on this, to be honest. I've always thought the idea of the Bat myth is a strong one, but that has to be cultivated, something DC failed to do effectively. It certainly works for year one Bats, but after a while... Yeah, the bat, the bat comes out of the shadow after a while. Yeah. You can't stay a myth. I mean, it's, it's impossible. Michael Bailey called uh, our discussions great. And he says, I personally believe that the main reason that all versions of Batman work to one extent or another, while other versions of Superman ultimately don't, boils down to how the two characters evolved. Superman was the champion of the weak and the oppressed until the higher-ups said he needed to be more law-abiding. And that's where Superman stayed for the next 50 or so years. Thanks to a popular radio show and then a popular television show and then a popular film series, Superman was DC's flagship title through thick and thin. Batman had a fan base, but as he went into the 60s, the series struggled. He went from Grim Avenger to The Policeman's Friend to the crazy sci-fi hero to the detective to the campy crime fighter to the Grim Avenger of the night to a soap opera to Miller and on and on. To survive, the character had to change with the audience. So the television series from the 60s exists along with Nolan's version of the character because it appeals to different audiences because Batman has had so many different audiences over the years. As for my favorite era, well, I have favorite eras, and he goes on. Uh, but he makes an interesting point that Batman, because Batman lacked popularity at some point, he kept being reinvented and then coming back to what... So suddenly you've got a character that's more fluid, whereas... Superman was a you know a pretty steady seller for a long while had a lot of alt media and whenever there's alt media the characters in the comics kind of fall in line to look like that movie to look like to yeah. feel like that so if it's sustained through the radio show and the TV series and then the Christopher Reeve era then you're stuck with a Superman that is a certain tone yeah. for 40 years yeah 50 years so at one point it becomes impossible to go into other shades because no one's ever done the character that way and exactly. it won't be received as well. Exactly. It. It, it, it could be the reason why people lost their minds when he lost his red underwear. You know, he touched a little bit on something yeah. there. Well, Bailey's like the Superman expert in the group, so... I Yeah, I, I, I kind of like this. I, I, I'm going to accept his, uh, uh, his explanation here. Diablo Frank, oh, speaking wow. of experts, uh, he says at, at some point in the mid ish 90s when i was in ultimate sad sack mf mode i bought numerous packs of index cards and attempted to break down every dc comic i owned on a single card each i did this with a pencil with notations of creative teams and where the story fit on the zero hour timeline not only was this effort quixotic but fairly early into the internet era it was made even more redundant foolish and hopeless 
than it was to begin with. Years back, I was able to repurpose a few of those cards into lackluster DC Bloodlines posts when I was still trying to get something, anything, up on a regular basis. Daily? Weekly? Hmm. They're mostly incomprehensible to the me of today. And we've had two to three major continuity reboots since Zero Hour, so that was an embarrassing waste of time. Point being, the most resonant aspect of the issue for me is that I'm pretty sure I made up a card for it, but barely remember the story even after listening to your detailed synopsis. I used to do that shit too. (laughs) I'm sure you did. I had reams of ambush bug notations... Uh, wow. Explaining every joke in those comics, I I tried to do those index cards for characters. That's it's a shared sickness, Frank. I'm, we're, I, we're not the only two. You probably are, though. You probably. No, are. I, I I'm just sure keep, we're not. I just keep all that in inside my huge head. But uh, wow, you guys are just a different different I, level. You know what's the real surprising thing is that I don't still have them <laughs> because I'm quite the pack rat. And he agrees with Michael Bailey that Superman is a victim of his own success. Uh, Mort Weis- is, yeah. yeah, Mort Weisinger, he says, had such a rigid view of what a Superman story could be, and variations of that sort of myopia played out under the unfortunately lengthy editorial reigns of Julie Schwartz and Mike Carlin after that, that nobody who knows what to do with The Man of Tomorrow have been allowed to work on him in a substantial way in generations. Batman has adapted to a variety of audiences while maintaining his essential appeal by necessity of being forced into a Superman storytelling mode for decades, but benefited from less severe and more cultured, tasteful editorial oversight following Jack Schiff's dismissal. Schwartz got Batman in a way he never did Superman, which helped a lot. So you've got editorial offices also yeah. forcing the character to be something specific. After the 1989 Batman success, uh, there was this whole, uh, you know, the ears could not be more than so so many inches long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing, you know. And that's just the look. But there were editors, very tyrannical editors at DC. Really? D- during the uh, 60s and 70s. Yeah, some of them, like Weisinger, like terrors. Wow. Terrors. I, I did not know that. And uh, you would, it was their way or the highway, and they had the way of working and the kind of stories you could tell. And, um, you know, and, and they lasted more than a decade on books, uh, keeping those books in a certain shape. And so the silly Batman of the 50s, yeah, uh, that was Jack Schiff's Batman. And it wasn't until Julie Schwartz took over that they added the oval... Uh, and they made him a more realistic character with more yeah. realistic adventures, more detective work, uh, and less of the silliness that we associate with the Silver Age. Yeah. But then Superman stayed in that weird, silly Silver Age mode for far longer because yeah. Weisinger was still on the on those books. So there's like house styles within the bigger house uh, in, in those times. Which is kind of weird. Uh, well, thinking back, or just in, in my opinion, it's kind of weird because... Uh, these characters would or can profit immensely from creative people, creative writers, creative artists. And it's it's a weird thing to just keep it closed off to anything creative or outside that creative box that they, they set up. It's a, it's a weird thing. Yeah. Things were very, very strict back then. Comics code. Uh, yeah. You know, what kind of comics we're making and for who were making them. Uh, so it's not until they get real competition from Marvel that they're going to start to want to experiment or try to do different things uh, with more or less success. 
So you've got to work within very, very close parameters. It's a tough job, I mean. And back then, I mean, it was like a grind. You wrote or drew a lot of stuff and to spec. And I, I think few comic book writers and artists really took ownership of the characters they worked on in, in that era. Really, you don't you don't hear a lot of that. It's like it's very very work for hire, and you're being told, see that cover? Because I, I had this cover made. Write a story based on this cover. What? <laughs> what? Okay, yeah, <laughs> that's how they work. Well, it's crazy. Well, it's not crazy. I mean, I understand why or how they did it, but somewhere in there, if you don't let the creators uh, take ownership of not ownership as in it belongs to them, but uh, ownership of the stories and and some of the, you can't have guidelines. You can't have you know loose Superman doing anything or, or doing everything everything but you need to you have to make that box a bigger sandbox to be more creative because uh if the creators feel like they have a take on whatever they're doing they have a certain responsibility that comes with that and they they have uh you know they're, they're they'll be proud of their work i think there was more freedom over at marvel probably early yeah. on like that but in the 60s dc was they were making comics for 10 year olds and uh you that know, was it that's what we're doing uh, nobody nobody out there knows who you are what your name is and that was really like marvel really started that thing going you know stanley started a cult of yeah. personality around himself and the people he worked with and uh, you know this is like addressing you right in the caption boxes and saying this is stanley bringing you another tale of uh, you know or yeah he's, he's putting a lot of epithets around it and uh, he's making jack kirby and steve ditko yeah. and all these guys characters in the drama that's unfolding at the offices that are providing you with these comics yeah. whereas and and they sold to a like a slightly older audience yeah. teenagers and college students and dc were like stuck in the the idea that it was a childish thing and they did not credit their uh, creators inside the books very often wow until much later because marvel started that wave i want to know who unless it's very obvious I mean, who wrote this story I'm like I read a lot of Silver Age Superman stories. Yeah. Who wrote this? Uh, I have to go on some sort of uh, comics database online to to check out who the credited writer is. Wow. Uh, because they're not usually credited on the book. Wow. Ten year olds don't care about that stuff. Ten year olds. And do that's not care. Uh, that, that was like how they made decisions. I think there are probably other comments about this issue. It's possible if there are. We're just recording very very close to the uh, publishing date of the previous episode. So uh, if there are, I'll put them right here. We did get one from Martin Gray. He says, excellent episode. What I remember most about this issue was what a terrible combo Novick and Mitchell were. I was a massive fan of the former, more for his Flash work than his Batman, though that was always good, but age alone can't explain how off the stuff here is. Inking, man. Now back to the show. Uh, some Facebook likes and shares, best from uh, Aaron Henley, Al Sedano, Alan Middleton, Anthony Madge, Batman Nightcast, Billy Lacasse, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics, Daniel Budnick, David Days Gutierrez, David Foster, D. Bash, Derek William Crabb, Gary Mitchell, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, H. Daniel Rebolt, Jimmy McGlinchey, John Grenier, Kalel Kamandi, Leslie Hall, Trigg III, Max Lax, Max Romero, Michael Bailey... Mike Peacock, Mike Zumo, Ali Almeida, Pat Sampson, Rob Gillespie, Rob Kelly, Robert Ward, Ryan Daly, Sam Lowe, Scott Cage, Sean Emmons, Shag Matthews, Sean Strawbridge, Steve J. Rogers, Terrence Castonguay, Thomas Fovey, and Van Z. On Twitter, retweets and favorites from Al Middleton, ATMSSG, Austin Kuykendall, Code Electro, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Comic Superheroes, Daniel R. Budnick, L22 Loku, Film and Water Podcast, Jackie and Tom Conker, Jared Albrick, Kiji Baker, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Connell, Chrissy's and JD Blutt, Longbox Crusade, Mark Wiggins, Mike Ratliff, Neo Geek, 
Parley Pod Comics Talk, Roll Spine Podcast, The 108th Sage, Yakuman Shrine, Treasury Comics, Villain of Atlantis, and Warlord Worlds. Wow. That's, that's a lot, that's a lot of, of people. Of sharing. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. That's very appreciated. We remind you that if you want to leave uh, comments on this particular issue, the new Guardians, mm-hmm. relevant comics, whatever you want to talk about, please go to the fireandwaterpodcast.com where the conversations do take place. Or you can always leave a message on the Facebook page uh, for the Fire and Water Podcast. Yeah, or you can use Twitter. Just remember to use the hashtag FWPodcasts. And uh, that's it. Thank yeah. you very much. Next time on First Strike, the Invasion Podcast, The Spectre. Number 23.